Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Hey, we're in week three of our series Origins, and we are motoring through the Bible. And we're going week by week, weekend after weekend, just chronologically through the different books of the Bible. And so last week was a bit out of order. If you're reading in your Bible, you're like, wait, that's not second. Today is the second book in the Bible. We're going to look at the book of Exodus at really, I think, one of the most classic parts of the Bible. I mean, there's been movies made about it and kids shows made about it. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably know some of these stories that we'll talk about today that come from the book of Exodus And so today, what we're going to look at in Exodus is this idea of provision and response. Now, not every sermon title can be super clever, so that's all I got for you today is provision and response. It kind of gives you an idea of the two parts of where we're going to go today. Uh, And so what we're going to see is over and over and over in the book of Exodus, God supernaturally provides for his people. In the worst of circumstances, when their backs are against the wall, when they're in between a rock and a hard place, he provides supernaturally over and over and over again. But we're also going to see, as we see here, a response. We're going to see how the people respond to God's provision. We will, and we'll see how, if they respond in a positive way, it goes really well. If they respond in a negative way, things kind of start to break down and disintegrate. And what we'll also see as we go along here is this story isn't just a story that happened thousands of years ago that's in the first part of the Bible, but we today in this modern time are exactly like the people we'll be reading about. The way that God wants to provide for us is the same, not maybe the exact same way, but the same sort of way he wants to provide for all of us. And also how we respond to him does play a part in what goes forward from there. So we are a lot like the people we'll read about today. I will give you a heads up. There is going to be a lot of scripture we're going to go through today. Because I figure Exodus is, is one of maybe, maybe the coolest books to read through, the story, especially the first half of Exodus. There's just so much action, so much drama. Instead of me trying to just retell it, I'm just going to read quite a bit as we go along today to kind of see uh, what we're going to see here in the book of Exodus. So we're going to see three ways or three types of provision that God provides for his people. Now, now sometimes we'll read in the text that they, they're called Israelites. Technically, they're not yet. They're, they don't, there's no nation yet. They don't have that identity yet. So typically, if I call them Hebrews, I'm still talking about the same people. It's just they haven't moved into the land of Israel yet. We'll get there in a couple weeks. Uh, so that's, where we're, that's who we're going to talk about today, or the Israelites or the Hebrews. It's the same difference. So let's start with this idea that the first way that we see God provide for his people is in suffering. Last week, we talked all about suffering, so this sort of stems off that same idea. Even in the worst of circumstances, God does and can provide. So let's start at the very beginning of Exodus here, chapter 1, verse number 6, and see what this looks like for God's people. Exodus 1, verse 6. In time, Joseph and all his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. 
Eventually, a new king came into power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, Look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. I think it's an interesting assumption that the Pharaoh makes there. Why would these people that have lived in peace with you just join the enemy? It's a weird assumption, but that, maybe that's just his propaganda messaging, because here's what he says. Then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramesses as supply centers for the king. Verse 12, here's the key. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. Here's how amazing God is. Even in the midst of slavery, God still blessed and multiplied his people. In some of the most brutal conditions you could imagine, God still blesses them. They kept growing and growing and growing. In fact, here, the way that I would sum that last part up is the more they were oppressed, in fact, the more they were blessed. It seems odd, but that's what it says here. The more they were oppressed, the more they were blessed. There's an interesting story at the end of chapter 1 and leading into chapter 2 where the, 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 one of the Pharaoh, part of his plan is he's going to kill all of the, the boys who are born to the Hebrew slaves so they don't keep outnumbering them, right? So he tells the midwives who are helping to deliver the babies, as you're delivering them, kill them, immediately kill them. So we have a similar problem in our country today. I'm not going to get into that, but you, we do. We have the same issue today, right? Here's the thing, though. The midwives, it says, feared God and refused to obey the Pharaoh's command. So there's a problem, though, is that when the Pharaoh is expecting there to be no Jewish boys running around, there's a bunch of them. So finally, he asks some questions of these midwives. He says, hey, ladies, what's going on here? What's the problem? You know, I gave you a pretty simple command here, pretty simple instruction, and yet I'm seeing that not being done. Their their reasoning is, is, I think, pretty comical. It's so amazing. They said, hey, hey, Pharaoh, these Hebrews, they are some sturdy gals, and they can really have kids. They just pop them out so fast. We can't even kill them in time. Like, they're just popping out, and they're already, like, ready to roll. What do we, we can't take them from their arms and kill them. That'd be too obvious, you know? And so that's kind of what they, they say. They just birth these kids so fast, so good. We, we don't, and of course, it's not true, but I love that they use that as their cover. And he kind of buys it I, for, for some time. Um, there's just a neat story from Exodus 1. You maybe didn't hear that one in kids' church, but that's, that's in the Bible, all right? I'm going to teach kids' church next week. We're talking about Moses in our new series, so this is perfect. I can tell that story about Exodus chapter 1. So, time passes on. The slaves are continued to be beaten and worked mercilessly, but still God provides. In their suffering, God provides and blesses them. So, here's the second way. We'll spend most of our time here, so if I don't move on from here for a while, don't get antsy on me, okay? I'll just let you know we're going to spend most of the rest of our time on this second part here. God provides provision, as we know, for his people in their deliverance. So in their suffering, he provides provision, but also in their deliverance, we see his provision. So let's continue on Exodus chapter 2, starting at verse 23. So it says, years passed, about 400 years have passed since Exodus 1. And the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. I love that phrase. God knew it was time to act. So in their deliverance, the first thing God has to provide is a deliverer. Now, he could have, obviously, he could have delivered them without any help at all, right? God can do anything without any of us that he wants to do at any time. Yet, through his sovereign grace, he chooses to use people through whom to work, to show his glory through people. Because I think it's going to be, that's what really, I think, broke uh, Pharaoh at, at, at one point is he knows that Moses says God is doing all these things, but he still sees Moses sort of doing these things. And I think when he can see the person behind the work there and know, okay, there's a power behind this guy that I don't have, that really means something. So God chooses to use him, but he's got to call him. So quickly, who is this Moses guy? He's actually one of the Hebrew boys who was saved by the midwives who refused to kill the boys. So when he's born, his mother hides him for about three months until he cries so loudly she's going to get caught, basically. So she puts him in a basket and floats him down the Nile River, not knowing exactly what's going to happen. Again, by the providence of God, he happens to go into where the Pharaoh's daughter is bathing with her friends. And she sees the basket, and they open it up, and there's a baby in there. And she's like, oh, it's so cute. You know, she Instagrams it, you know, and she does the selfie thing, and she decides, I'm going to adopt this, this baby. So she adopts the baby. So Moses is raised, even though he's a Hebrew, he's raised as the grandson of the sitting Pharaoh. Many years pass. Uh, as an adult, he, he's kind of overlooking the work that's being done by the slaves, out in, the, out in the field, he sees an Egyptian slave master beating severely a Hebrew slave. And something rises up in him, something comes over him, and he just is filled with anger and rage. He goes down and actually kills that Egyptian slave master. So he kind of knows he probably was caught. Someone says something that they kind of saw him do something. Pharaoh hears about it and decides, I'm going to kill Moses, my own grandson. And so Moses runs away from Egypt and goes to a land called Midian. Where he just lives out there. He's going to live out his days being a shepherd in this land, this sort of a suburb, if you will, of Egypt. But God has another plan. God has a different plan for Moses than to just sit out there and be a shepherd in the field for the rest of his life. And so on a mountain, maybe you've heard about this mountain before, it's called Mount Sinai. Moses is there by this mountain, and he has this experience with a burning bush where God calls him to deliver his people from bondage in Egypt. God delivers a deliverer. So what I love about this idea here is, is for us is that just like it says here in, in verse 25, God knows when it's time to act. So let me ask you, what, what have you been waiting for for a while for God to do? Maybe you've been suffering for years with some ailment or some issue or some person in your life, some relationship. Maybe you have a lot of questions Maybe you're about to give up. You're getting antsy or impatient or doubts creeping in, becoming too strong. Let me encourage you, at just the right time, God knows when it's time to act. He's the same God now that he was then. He knows exactly the right time to come through in exactly the right way. And he will give you what you need to do what he's called you to do. See, when God calls Moses on this mountain through this burning bush, Moses says, I can't do it. I have a stuttering issue. How am I going to go approach the, the king of the world, basically, and command him to do anything? I'm, not, I'm a nobody, you know. It's like, and so God provides him what he needs. First, he says, hey, you got a staff in your hand. Hey, that's enough. I just need a little piece of wood. That's, I can work with that. And so he says, everything you need is right there. Plus, he gives him his brother Aaron to be the spokesperson. 
He says, I know you can't speak. I know you don't think you have what it takes. I'm going to give you a little bit of help here. You and your bro are going to tag team this thing, and together we're going to make this thing happen. And so with the staff and with his brother, and that's it, God gave him what he needed to do what he called him to do. So they march into Pharaoh's court, and they say these famous words. God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, you and what army are going to make me? Right? So then God does his next thing of provision. He provides the ten plagues in Egypt, doesn't he? Right? He tries to force Pharaoh's hand, twist his arm, uh, soften or harden his heart, however you want to view that, to make him release his people. So he turns the water into blood. It says even water in like pitchers and jars that had already been gathered turned to blood. There's a plague of frogs that fill the land. You can't even see the ground. There's a plague of gnats. There's a plague of flies. There's a plague where all the livestock of the Egyptians die. There's a plague where they're covered in boils from head to toe. There's a plague of hail that uh, destroys nearly every plant. And then after that, there's a plague of locusts that destroys the rest of whatever plants are left. And then there's a plague of darkness that covers all of Egypt. So a few times during this exchange, during this number of days or weeks that go on here with these plagues one after another, Pharaoh says, okay, 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 I've had enough. I'll let them go. And then the plague lifts and Pharaoh's like, ah, just kidding. Gotcha. Fooled you. I'm not letting you guys go. Are you kidding me? Right? Here's the cool thing about these plagues, though. It's interesting choice of words there. Cool thing about the plagues is that even in that, God also provides for his people. There are at least three of these plagues that I've already mentioned in Exodus where God only puts the plagues on the Egyptians and not on his people. So the plague of flies the Egyptians are swarmed with flies, and the Hebrews are going to watch them like, you guys look ridiculous over there, swatting and, you know, whatever. They don't have any, that problem where, in their neighborhood. The same thing when, when the livestock die, only the Egyptians' livestock dies. The Hebrew slaves, all of their animals survive this plague. And then here's the most interesting one. The plague of darkness was still split. Darkness over the part of Egypt where the Egyptians live, total day where the Hebrew slaves live. Now, can you imagine how that, I don't know how that would even work, how that even looks, but that's what the scripture says. These three plagues, God, God provided in this way, even in this part of their suffering, in a sort of a preview of his deliverance. But I only named nine plagues there. There's, there's one more, the last one, the worst of all, right, is the tenth one, which is the plague of the death of the firstborn. So God gives this instruction to Moses, and God warns Pharaoh what's about to happen, but he prepares God's people for what's about to happen. Those are two different things. God warns Pharaoh, God's going to send one more plague. Every firstborn male in this country will die unless you let God's people go. But he doesn't just give this overall thing to the people. He gives them instructions on how to avoid this plague as well. And that's where the Passover comes from. He tells the people, okay, tonight make a meal with either a goat or a lamb. And then you're going to prepare. He says, you want to keep your shoes on? Very specific about that. You're going you're gonna to sort of bake the bread with no leaven because we're, we're going to be in a hurry. Once this thing happens, we're going to be out of here. So be ready. And then he says, make sure you stay in your home while you do this. And then when you take the blood from the animal that you're killing for your meal and put it on the doorpost of your home. Because what's going to happen is God's going to send this angel through the whole land. And every, every house where there's blood over the doorpost, the firstborn will live in that home. However, if there's no blood on the doorpost of a home, the firstborn of that household will die. Now, this is not just children either, mind you. If there's maybe a young couple with no children and that 
that man is the firstborn in his family, he's also going to die. So it's not just restricted to children or babies. Every firstborn male in the entire country of Egypt is going to die unless there is blood on the doorposts. So the people follow these instructions and an entire generation is saved, which as we'll see in a little bit later, it will come in very handy in a few, a few short months. An entire generation is saved because of these instructions. But the Egyptians do suffer. They suffer loss like maybe has not been seen since. Every firstborn son dies. And so finally, this breaks the back of Pharaoh, and he says, okay, you can go. Please get out of here as fast as you can. We've suffered enough. So you would say, yay, deliverance over, right? They're out of there. Not quite. God's provided up to this point, but he's going to provide something now in a way that seems very counterintuitive. His next method of provision is going to seem odd. So let's look at it. We're going to pick it up at Exodus chapter 13, verse number 17, and it'll go into chapter 14 as well. So they're on their way out. Okay, he's released them. Exodus 13, 17, when Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through the Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Thus the Israelites left Egypt like an army ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear to do this. He said, God will certainly come to help you. When he does, you must take my bones with you from this place. The Israelites left Sukkoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them. He guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud, and he provided light at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or by night, and the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire from its place in front of the people. Now we're in Exodus chapter 14. Then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses, ordered the Israelites to turn back and camp at Pihiroth between Migdal and the sea, camp there along the shore across Baal Zephon. Then, here's why, then Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are confused, they're trapped in the wilderness. Once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after you. I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites camped there as they were told. A lot there. God provided a lot of different things here, and some of them seem very confusing. The first one is, it says, God led them in a roundabout way. He led them, he, they took the scenic route, let's just say. There's a direct path, shoom, straight through there. And God's like, mm, nah, they wanna, I'm not going to take the most obvious route. I'm not going to take the shortest way. I'm not going to let them do the easiest thing. We're going to go this way for a specific reason. It kind of reminds me of Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Matthew 4, verse 1, and Luke 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. Now, that does not seem to make sense. God led you to the desert to be tempted. That's what it says, okay? Both Matthew and Luke got this download, and as they're writing this, they're probably thinking, man, that sounds kind of like Exodus chapter 13 and 14, doesn't it? They probably make this connection in their brain as they're writing this about Jesus, sometimes God will lead us in a roundabout way, won't he? And it is so frustrating when he does that. 
And it is so agonizing when he does that. And it is so confusing when he does that. You're like, okay, wait, no, God, there's an A to B here. He's like, ah, no, 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 we're not going to do it that way. Because sometimes, I think God knows, the easiest way is not always the best way. The quickest way may not be the best way. But God has a process. And so what we need to have is patience. If God leads us in a roundabout way, let's have patience in the process. But along with this, God does, you would think, well, how are they, not, how are they going to know where to go? God's got that covered too. He provides this supernatural pillar. During the day, it's a cloud that directs them where to go. At night, it lights up. It's a pillar of fire at night. They have perfect, complete direction on where to go in the middle of the desert. They kind of know where they're going, but don't know why they're going the way they're going. They're just following where God leads them. I believe God works the same way with you and I. When we don't know where to go, we don't know what turn to make, what decision to make, what to do, I believe God can and will provide perfect direction for our lives. God doesn't want you to get lost. He doesn't want you to, to not know where you're going. He, he will and can, and I believe does, provide perfect direction, even if it's in an unconventional way. That's when we need him the most, actually. So if you're consistently living a life where you keep saying, I would never choose to do it that way, but God did, you're probably doing something right. If you're looking at how things happen, like I would never have drawn this out that way, but it worked, that means God's doing something. That means he's directing you. If you would say, you know what, if I could do that all over again, uh, I would probably take out the pain part of that situation, but God taught me something, through, that means you're probably doing it right, okay? So again, in a roundabout way, it's not always direct, it's not always easy, it's not always painless or perfect, but if God is leading you and he's got a process, let's have patience in that and do it his way. So the other problem here with the Hebrews, though, is their roundabout way led them between a rock and a hard place, or really quite literally between a sea and an army. God leads them to a sea, and that's all they see is the sea in front of them. And what's happening is now Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He's changed his mind. He's like, wait, I gave up like a million and a half people free labor. That was a mistake. So I'm going to go get them back and bring them back. So they're chasing from behind. They had the sea in front of them, and God led them there. Seems weird, but that's what happened. I believe, again, for us, over and over again, as we're being led in this sort of roundabout way, God will time and time again intentionally lead you to an impossible situation. He will intentionally lead you to an impossible situation. Now, why would God do that? Why would he, why would he do that? Well, I believe, just like we're going to see here, God does it to show his power at work in your life. He leads you to an impossible situation so that you and everybody else can know only God could have made this happen. So in the late 1930s, World War II was really getting in gear in Europe. Hadn't really hit our shore yet. But in the, in the late 30s, Europe was already in the midst of World War II. And so there was this slogan that the British government kind of had out there for everyone to see that's pretty famous again now. It's this simple phrase, keep calm and carry on. This was plastered everywhere, signs in the windows, and every, it was just everywhere, right? And so it's this idea, it's this wartime slogan to kind of calm people's nerves. You know, it's like, I know we're in the middle of a war, I know there's a crazy tyrant who's trying to move through and take over the world, but just keep calm and carry on, right? It's like the British way, stiff upper lip, don't show your emotions, don't show your fear, just live your life, do your thing as if nothing's happening, even though the whole continent is starting to fall apart. So that was their whole idea. 
But this idea is actually in the Bible. It's actually in Exodus. So let me, let me show you what I'm talking about. Exodus 14. So again, they're camped between the sea and the army behind them. And here's what Moses and God say to the people. Exodus 14, verse 13. Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians will see today, the Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. So it's not really keep calm and carry on. It's more keep calm and get a move on. Okay. <laughs> that, is, that is the message here. At the Red Sea in front of me, the army behind me, Moses says, keep calm, and God says, get a move on. And so you're thinking, well, where, where are we going to go? If we turn backward, we're going into the trap. If we go forward, we're going to drown. This is not a good situation. Where do you want us to go? How are we supposed to stay calm in this situation? Okay? But the, so the first, the first step to this miracle that's about to happen for the people of God is they actually had to get closer and deeper into that impossible situation. They had to really, really feel the heat. It had to be like the 11th hour type of situation for them. They had to get deeper into an impossible situation. So here's, here's how this applies again to us. I believe in whatever situation you've got going on, whatever impossible thing it is that's in front of you, whatever thing that's been oppressing you for so long, I believe this. God will give you victory, but you have to show up ready for battle. God will give you victory, but he needs you to do whatever he's asking you to do in the midst of that for that victory to happen. Okay? So the people walk toward the Red Sea, and Moses stretches out his staff over the water, and we know what happens. The waters part. So what also happens, remember the pillar of fire and cloud that's been guiding them, and it's kind of just over them now, like, you know, trying to figure out what we're going to do next. So actually it says the pillar of fire jumps behind the people as a literal firewall, okay, to block them from the Egyptian army. It's there all night. So the people cross on the dry uh, riverbed, the seabed of the Red Sea. So the water splits in half, walls of water on each side. The people, about two million of them or so, walk through on dry ground with the pillar of fire keeping the Egyptians behind them where they can't chase them. Then eventually, once they've crossed far enough, the pillar of fire whew, goes away and the army's like, all right, this is it, let's go. So they go through the riverbed until the waters come back together and drowns the entire army. So God provides in deliverance. He provides in an amazing way. So he's provided in suffering. He's provided in deliverance. But, but now what? Well, now what he's going to do is he's going to provide in their wandering. So they still have to make a, a bit of a trip, a bit of a trek to get to their promised land. It's going to be several weeks probably for them to get from point A to point B. And so the first problem that the people have is there's no food, Right? man, I forgot to pack my Lunchable for the trip. And they've already been traveling for some time, so whatever they did pack is already gone. And they're like, wait, we've got several weeks in the desert left to get there. How are we going to do that? We're, we're, and they're just like, Moses, we're going to die. You know, you brought us out here to die. You know? And so they just complain, and they whine, and they whine. And they even, here's what they say. They say this a few more times. They say, let's just go back to Egypt. At least we had food there. It's like, wait, wait a second. You were also beaten daily to do manual labor uh, and die there. Like, really? That's a, yeah, good food? I'll, yeah, I'll take that. No. That's how crazy these people are, is they said, we'd rather go back to Egypt to be slaves because at least we had food. So God provides 
food for them in two different ways. He provides two square meals a day. It's pretty generous of God to do that. So it says every morning they'd wake up, there was this white flaky stuff all over the ground. It's called manna, which in Hebrew just simply means what is it? That's what this is called. What is it? Because that's the name of it, because they don't know what it is. And so it's these little flakes that taste kind of like honey. It's really good. It's really amazing. And so every morning they come out and it's there. And they pick it up and they store it and they eat it that day. They go out the next morning. It's there. It's like, wow, this is crazy. Actually, God did that every day, the whole time they're wandering. Every day. And also during the day, he provides quail to fly really low to the ground so they can capture it, kill it, and eat that for meat as well. So supernaturally, God provides this food in their wandering. But there's one major thing, I think, that God provides in their time of wandering from Egypt, from the Red Sea to the Promised Land, and that is he provides them with his presence. Now, he already has the pillar of cloud and fire leading them. To a certain degree, that's his presence, yes. But what happens is they camp to the mountain. We've already talked about Mount Sinai, where Moses was many, many months and months and months ago with God calling him. They go back here. Now, I don't spend a lot of time on this, but let me just say, God kind of knows what he's doing. Moses went to Midian, I believe, by design. God showed up to him at Mount Sinai by design because he's going to know, hey, months later, he's going to know how to get here. He's going to already have trekked here. He's going to have spent years of his life here. He's going to know the layout of the land here. So in this time where even Moses is wandering as a shepherd sort of aimlessly, God is giving him the GPS to know the layout of the land. So that when they have to come to it again, Moses kind of is familiar with where they are. They camp at this mountain, and here's what happens. This is God's display, his provision in their wandering, his display of his power. Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God thundered his reply. The Lord came down on top of, the, of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses climbed the mountain. God shows I think a powerful display of his might, but it's also sort of a personal aspect to this. Only they, they got to see the plagues with the Egyptians and everything, but only they got to witness this sort of personalized uh, power of God in this way. It sort of harkens back to when Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. They sort of have a, a, a similar experience here at this mountain. So Gozus, go, Mo, Gozus, yeah, Gozus, Moses goes up to the mountain, and God then provides them with another key spiritual thing, and that is the law. We will talk about that next week. We'll, we'll talk about uh, really the next three chapters in the Bible, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that talk about the law. So, you know, that's the graveyard of Bible reading plans. We'll hopefully bring some light to that for you next week. We'll talk about the law. So, in their weeks and months of wandering, God provided, as he did in their suffering and in their deliverance. Now let's go just for a few minutes here to this last part, and that is their response to God's provision. So God, over and over and over again, month after month after month, in situation after situation, God has provided exactly what they need and exactly when they needed it. 
every time. So, but their, their response to these, some of these events are mixed, as we'll see. Some of, the, some of these responses are mixed, and each response has its own result. So, when they believed and obeyed God, it was awesome. Again, go back to the Passover. They followed Moses' instructions, and their children, the firstborn, were all saved, and they were delivered. Those that did not obey the instructions, wasn't the same story for the Egyptians, was it? And then actually, supernaturally, God provided uh, as they crossed the Red Sea. They actually went and moved forward closer to the sea as God told them, closer to an impossible situation, getting locked in a corner, back against the wall. They followed God's instruction, His commands, and they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. When they followed the direction of the pillar of cloud and fire, they never got lost. In the vast wilderness of the Middle East, they knew exactly where to go because they just followed where God was leading them. When they followed and when they believed and obeyed, it went well with them. However, when they doubted and disobeyed, it was a different story. Let's go back to the manna that we talked about that God provided on the ground every morning. God had a specific instruction about the manna. He says, gather just enough for you and your family for that day. That's it. Don't, don't kind of, you know, don't like do the toilet paper before the pandemic thing, you know. We don't need that happening with the manna here. So we're going to go and we're going to get just what we need for just our family, just for that day, because by faith you need to believe that God's going to have that same amount for everyone the next day. And that's what exactly what happened. However, some people got greedy or they got scared. Maybe they didn't think God would provide, so they hoarded up more than they needed. They put it in this little jar or something in the kitchen, and then the next day they wake up and that jar is rotten and full of maggots. It's gross. It's a simple thing, right? That God's like, no, 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 just follow the instructions and it will work. If you don't follow the instructions, it will not work. Then with the quail, they can, later on, this is in uh, Numbers, so we're getting into a little bit of Numbers as well because it, it tells this story in a different book. So I know we're going, trying to go in order, and we are. We're just taking this part of Numbers and popping it here today, okay? So they complain about the quail after a while. They're like, okay, it's the same thing every day. At least we had a buffet at Egypt, you know, with some variety in our diet, you know. It's like just quail and manna, quail and manna. So God makes a plague go throughout the people, because they're complaining about supernatural food in the desert. He's like, I'm not going to hear about this. I don't. So stomach bug, boof. You know, I don't know what the plague was, but I just imagine it was a stomach bug of some kind, right? So here's another, here's a big, the big, big, big no-no. So we've just seen God display his power on the mountain, and he's called Moses up. While Moses is up there for several weeks, God gives him the law, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, right? But while he's up there, he's been up there for a while, the people down below are getting kind of antsy. They're thinking, okay, maybe he's dead, or maybe he's going to just be up there with God and never come back. Maybe God's, like, left with Moses or something. So they decide, hey, let's make our own God and worship it. So they, they take their gold jewelry and all their stuff, and they melt it down. They make a golden calf. They make this idol that they are going to worship. And wouldn't you know it, how time just happens to work perfectly, just as it's coming out of the fire and just, as they're, just as they're about to start worshiping this golden calf as their new God, Moses is coming back down from the mountain. Perfect timing. Exodus 32, verse 19. When they came near the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing, and he burned with anger. He threw the stone tablets to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. Verse 20. He took the calf they had made and burned it. Then he ground it into powder, threw it into the water, and forced the people to drink it. They also never told you that in kids' church, did they? <laughs> Moses is not happy. He's not messing around. 
God is not happy. He's not messing around. You would think after all that God has done for them, why is their immediate response to doubt him and turn to some other God of their own making? Why would they do that? They should know better. They saw what that got the Egyptians. Not a good result. They saw what their God did for them. Amazing results. And yet they still, in their fallen human state, they, oh, we need this thing to look to. We, we can't just believe that this God in the cloud and the God of the mountain is going to lead us where we need to go forever, are we? That's not realistic. Moses, maybe he's not coming back. We've got to have something to look to. And so Moses has the same question. He asks, because his brother Aaron, right, the tag team, Aaron's the one that led this charge in building the calf. So he approaches his brother and says, bro, what's the deal? What's up? How could you let this happen? And I just want to read this because it's so lame, what he says, okay? Verse 21, finally, he turned to Aaron and demanded, what did these people do to you to make you bring such terrible sin upon them? Don't get so upset, my Lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know how evil these people are. They said to me, make us gods who will lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So I told them, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. When they brought it to me, I simply threw it into the fire and out came this calf magic. I didn't know this was going to happen. I had no idea. I just threw it in there and out, man, you know, out came this calf that was gold and we were going to worship it. Yeah. So lame, isn't it? This is a lame excuse. Before we get too hard on Aaron, every time that we do the same thing with God and follow other things besides him, our excuses are equally lame. Oh, I didn't know if God was going to come through. Lame. That's just a lame excuse. Oh, this person said that they had a bad experience at church, so I quit. Lame right? It's just a lame excuse. So I don't want my life to be full of lame excuses. I want to be full of God's power at work within my life as I follow him. It's easier said than done. I understand that, but let's, let's do what we can to not have our life full of lame excuses. Here's one last example as we begin to close. One last example that really has long-lasting implications on the people where they had a negative response to God's supernatural provision. So here's what happens. This is, again, Numbers chapter 13. So pretty soon after this, here's what happens. They're kind of on the very edge of the promised land. Numbers 13, verse 1. The Lord now said to Moses, send out men to explore the land of Canaan, the land I am giving to the Israelites. Send one leader from each of the 12 ancestral tribes. So God sets up this reconnaissance mission one leader from each of the 12 neighborhoods, the 12 tribes of Israel, they're going to go scope out the land. God says that I am giving you. I am providing this for you. It's a done deal. It's already happened. Now, you haven't seen it happen yet, but I'm telling you it's happened. This is the land I am giving you. But here's what happens. So the men go on a 40-day trip to search out, scope out the land. They come back with this report, Numbers 13, 27. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. They said that the grapes were on stems so big it took two men like a pole to carry a cluster of grapes. Okay, that's what it says. But, 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 the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites and the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites live in the hill country and the Canaanites live on the coast of the, of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But, there it is, that, again, that word again, but the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. 
We can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too. So God promises more provision for them in their wandering. Hey, we're right on the edge of all that you, all that you and your ancestors suffered for over 400 years for is right here and I'm going to give it to you. He sent the spies to look at the land, not so they can do this, oh, we're so scared, but so they could bring back the grapes and tell the people how amazing this is, how rich and fertile the land is, how we're going to love this place. It's a paradise, guys. And they come back there, and they see, oh, the giants and all the people, and they're antagonistic, and they don't want us to live and move in in there, and it's just going to be terrible. And so God promises provision, but the people say to God, your promise isn't good enough. Your guarantee isn't good enough. So the people decide in that moment to stone Joshua and Caleb, the only two of the 12 spies with a good report. They're going to stone them to death. They're going to abandon Moses and pick a new leader and then go back to Egypt. So God's initial response to this is not too happy. He's going to destroy them. He tells Moses, I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you. You're going to be Abraham 2.0. It's going to restart with you. And Moses is like, no, 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 no. Please do not do that. He pleads on behalf of the people. And so God says, fine, I won't kill them now, but they are going to die. You know, one way or another, they're going to, they're going to die. No, but he says, here's the deal. I'm going to get my people to the promised land, but it's going to be the next generation that's going to see that. Here, here, this is why the Passover is so key now. You see how all the pieces fit? God saved a generation... Because if he didn't, there would be nobody to take the land. He says, only people 20 years and younger, only basically the the children who didn't doubt me, speak against me, do these false reports and claims about the land, only they will enter the land. He says, so the spies spied the land for 40 days. So he said, for every day they spied the land, you will wander in the desert for that many years. So the Israelites wander for 40 years in the desert till all of that older generation die, until the next generation can, make, can get to the promised land. It sounds pretty severe, but here's, here, now, we're going to apply it really quickly as we close to our lives. I'm not going to threaten death on you from God, okay? That's not, we're not going to make that correlation that close together, right? But each option or each response that we have to God does have a result, just like it did for Israel. Here's the options that we have. We can live a life of trust, obedience, and worship, and it will result in a life of blessing. Now, when I say blessing, I don't mean perfection. I don't mean everything's going to be certain, everything's going to be perfect. That's not what I'm saying. However, I think that living in and walking in God's blessing, God's protection, God's peace, God's direction, I think that's better than a life of certainty. I would rather have God on my side than have my whole life figured out. That's the option that we have. A life of trust, obedience, and worship leads to a life of blessing. However, a life of doubt disobedience and grumbling leads to a life of wandering, just like it did for God's people. When we second-guess God, it's a life of wandering because we're living a life of self-reliance that always leaves us empty. I think I know what I should do, and I am wrong. I try to do all these things, and I fail. If I'm self-reliant, my life is going to be empty and disappointing. It's going to lead to a life of wandering. When we rebel against God, it's a life of wandering. We repeat the same mistakes over and over and over and over just because we don't want to do things God's way. 
And we think we have freedom in that. I can make my own choices. I can make my own mistakes, and I can live life the way I want to. But it leads, it leads to a life of wandering. It leads to avoidable pain and loss. It leads to guilt. It leads to regret. It leads to a sense of hopelessness. I can't get this right. I keep messing up. I'm stuck in a rut. I keep doing the same stupid things over and over. It's because we've said no to God's way many times. And if we would just say yes, we have a life of blessing laid before us. But we also have a life of wandering if we do not. So I believe like God provided for his people thousands of years ago, God can, God wants to, and God will provide for you. He will provide exactly what you need, exactly when you need it. He will do that. So the question is, will we choose to see that? Will we choose to see him and do it his way? Let's live a life of faith, trust, obedience, and worship to God in order to live a life of powerful peace and blessing.